Hey, CNFers, wouldn't you know, I had the chance to speak with Patrick Radden Keefe, a staff writer for The New Yorker, the best-selling author of Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland, and the host behind the incredible Wind of Change podcast. And they had to be like, no, 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 that silence is gold. You know what I mean? The, the, don't step on that silence. Like, let it play out. The awkwardness is good. Oh, yes, that's right. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. And this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Thank you, friend, for tuning in. We're going to have some fun today, all right? This one with Patrick was in the works for a long time, and he was gracious with his time and his insights. I know you're going to dig it. He's at P. Radden Keefe on Twitter, and you can find him at PatrickRaddenKeefe.com as well for an archive of his work and other things, other goodies. Listen to this and go check him out. If you're like the only person under the sun who isn't familiar with this titan of narrative journalism. A little bit of housekeeping, of course. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook. Tag the show, at CNFPod, digital fist bumps. Let me know what you think of this episode, what you took away from it. You can also head over to brendanomero.com for show notes where you can leave the show a voicemail also. Isn't that cool? And I'll answer your query on air as best I can. You can sign up for the monthly newsletter there as well. A curation of book recommendations, cool articles, and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, can't beat it. Patrick is here, and we talk about him cracking the code of say nothing with his, like, office mate, neighbor. This guy just, you know, David Grant, no bigs. Structure, Patrick's relationship with his editor, editor Daniel Zaleski, Patrick's atypical road to narrative journalism, and how Wind of Change came about as a podcast versus, say, a long magazine article or even a book. You'll also hear his bookshelf for the apocalypse, of course. I hope you'll stay tuned to the end of the show where I'll give my parting shot. A little thing I'm titling the cookbook mentality. But until then, just enjoy this conversation with me and perhaps my number one draft pick if there was a fantasy team for narrative reporters, Patrick Redden Keith. <laughs> your most recent one anyway it uh-huh. what was so great about listening to you you guys talk it was like you know watching baseball tonight when like a-rod and frank thomas are talking hitting or something <laughs> it's like it was like that for me to be sitting in on these two pros talking shop it was it was just really cool to hear you guys uh to hear you guys break it down it was it was a really great conversation uh, i'm so glad to hear that that's nice for you yeah it's i mean it was fun for me particularly because i've known evan for years and years and um you know, we did a we did an earlier long form podcast at like a, at a very different stage of my life and his life and our careers, and uh, so it was just um, yeah, it was so fun to uh, to kind of pick up that conversation 
and it, it is a very nuts and bolts conversation. I mean, that's one of those ones that yeah, I think you really have to be interested in this kind of writing. But if you are, hopefully, hopefully it's uh, it's interesting. Oh, of course. You know, it's certainly anyone who listens to long form, even people who listen to this show. You know, I, I do love, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, getting into some of those nuts and bolts. And uh, I kind of, you know, in, in that vein, like kind of, um, you know, piggybacking on that sport metaphor, like, uh, you know, watching film and deconstructing what's going what's going on um sure you know like who are who are who are some of those writers and journalists reporters for you where you put them on the on the game tape and you're like deconstructing them, like how is this guy or, or the, how's this guy or this this uh, this woman doing this and uh you know and uh trying to apply that to your own reporting and your own writing yeah it's a good question i mean one of the things that is um to be perfectly honest with you still profoundly strange about my life is that a lot of those people for me when I was younger are people who subsequently I came to know and they became colleagues at, at the New Yorker. So it's, 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 you know, so there are people like, um, Philip Garevich or Larissa McFarkar or David Gran, um, who I read when I was younger and, and, and really did try to deconstruct those pieces and think, how did they, do this? How did they put these things together? And it, it, to this day, it's very strange to me that I now, um, I now know them and work, work alongside them. I had this especially surreal experience with my last book, Say Nothing, where for a period of time, this is when the New Yorker was in the, the old office, the person who was in the office next to me was David Grant. And he would, he would come into the office from time to time. <laughs> and I mean, it was a little bit surreal right to, to think that i would hit a a kind of a thorny narrative problem just a storytelling problem you know here's my dilemma how do i dole out this information how should i go about this or a reporting problem and and just the thought that that it's like well you know why not go next door and ask david grant what he would do <laughs> right. um, was uh it, you know kind of comical um in uh i just i you know to the to this day i i count my good fortune yeah, and when I had spoken to him, you know, a while ago when uh, Killers of the Flower Moon came out, and you know, speaking of narrative problems, you know, what really cracked open that book for him was reading uh, Faulkner's Ab Absalom, and you know, the three tier, uh, the uh, three pronged narrative yeah. structure, and that informed how he sort of cracked the code of Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, maybe when you were picking his brain, like what narrative puzzles did uh, did he help you crack? Uh, similarly. There were, I mean, the really big one was that I, um, I made this discovery very late in the game when I was working on Say Nothing, um, almost by accident. I stumbled on the identity of the person who was the killer in this notorious 1972 murder that that um, is kind of the basis for the whole book, and. Just it was a jaw dropping moment. <laughs> I mean, it was honestly, it was for me and my reporting um, as well. And I, and I hope it was in the book because, because in some ways all I was trying to do was, was convey the, um, the shock I felt myself and, and hope that some of that resonated with the reader. But when I first made the discovery, it was this tricky thing where I had connected these dots and there were a series of questions I had about, you know, a, thresholds of proof at what point is it acceptable in a book to 
name a living person who has never in any way been associated with a murder and say, I believe this is the murderer. When is it okay to do that? What, what a quantum of evidence do you need? And then B, how do you, how do you tell that to the reader? How do you present it to the reader? And David was one of the first people I talked to. The big thing that he said was, you've got to go back to everybody you talked to already because now you have a theory of the case. You know, it's sort of the Woodward and Bernstein thing, right? It's, it's one thing to go and ask people open-ended questions. It's another thing to go to people and say, I know this. Hmm. What, you know, what do you have to say about it? And so I did that. I went back to Ireland and I spoke to a bunch of people. I had to, I mean, I had to keep the circle somewhat small because I didn't want too many people to know that I'd figured this out. But there were key people who I wanted to go back to and, and present that to. And that ended up getting me to where I needed to be personally to be comfortable naming this person. And also, I, I hope to, to a point where I could persuade the reader. At the end of the day, all I can say to the reader is, I've done all this work, and here's the conclusion that I draw. But let me show you the steps I took, the deductive steps. And so this was part of what came out of this conversation with David, was the idea that if you, if you narrate that investigative process, it may be that there are some readers who are unconvinced, but you're doing it with a kind of transparency and good faith that won't run the risk of trying to stretch the available evidence into a theory, you know, to, to, to a place, trying to take it to a place it doesn't want to go. Were, uh, you know, lawyers essentially your copy editors at that point too? Yeah. And what was crazy about that was it was lawyers, um, <laughs> Lawyers in New York, uh, lawyers in Dublin, and lawyers in London, all of whom had different, because there were these three different jurisdictions that we had to think about. It was a pretty fraught process. But to be honest with you, I feel as though, for better or for worse, with the stuff I write about, lawyers almost always enter the equation. Right. <laughs> and it, it the, way, the way it was coming to a head in the book, too, and the way certain characters were always kind of you know, just resurfacing, whether through a different identity in the case of Brendan Hughes or, or, or other people, you just, that, the identity of that third person, I was just waiting for the shoe to drop. I'm like, who is this? We, we, I know we know this person. And then it comes down and it's just like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> That's who it was. And yeah. you just don't really get that that much in narrative nonfiction sometimes. And, and wow, what a hammer. Yeah. I mean, and I should say, I didn't go looking for it. Um Yeah. The the it's funny because in in a fair number of the reviews of the book, people characterized it as a whodunit. And I wrote pretty much the whole book, not thinking of it as that at all. You know, my assumption was this is a story about a murder and its repercussions. Um, I know the identity of a number of people kind of around that murder, but not the person who pulled the trigger. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's probably somebody who's not one of my characters. And because of the rules that I had created for myself in terms of how I wanted to write the book, my feeling was basically, I want to see this entirely through the eyes of this handful of people. And so if it's some other random dude, then it won't be all that interesting to me or to readers to say, oh, and there's this random gunman. And it turns out he's the guy who pulled the trigger. So it wasn't something I was looking for. The crazy thing is when I stumbled on it, it was it was really by accident 
And then, and then it turned out it was somebody who was one of my characters all along. And so that was the, like looking back on it, it takes on this Agatha Christie quality. Um, but that was really only true once I made this discovery. It didn't feel that way during the, you know, almost four years I spent working on the project before I made that realization. Yeah. And I, if I recall right from, I think it was when you were talking with Evan in the last, last episode of the long form that you did with him, it was just like you were on like a, a very late pass of the notes you made of a various of a certain transcript. So it was almost like you almost accidentally stumbled on this thing. You probably felt like you should have caught far earlier in the process. And it's like, it could have gone, this could have gone to print and then you find out, I mean, it's the fortuitous nature of the timing of that. It couldn't have worked out better for you. Yeah, but it is, you're, you're absolutely right that it's one of those um, kind of self-exposing anecdotes that actually shows what a sloppy hack I am, right? Because <laughs> it was only, um, it was only because I went back almost as an afterthought and just said, hey, is there anything in this 30-page single-spaced uh, transcript that I might have missed? And I think it's a, you know, I, on the one hand, in terms of my own process, I am a big believer in the idea that when you when you read through something the first time, the stuff that sticks with you on that first read is probably the stuff that you want to tell a reader. Like, I, you know, I have colleagues who obsessively go over their own notes from their own interviews, kind of trying to find things that had eluded them, whereas my philosophy is much more, uh, in a way, I don't want to go back to the notes at all. After I've done a two-hour interview, I want to think about the things that stick in my mind. Mm, yeah. And those are probably the things that I should use in, in the telling. But in some ways, that that episode um, at the end of Say Nothing is is an illustration of the limits of that particular approach, you know, <laughs> to be completely kind of um, off-the-cuff first impression, what grabs you right away is is sometimes to ignore pretty important stuff that's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. It, did that experience create some sort of like internal anxiety for you now going forward in that like, oh my God, what else might I be missing if I don't go back and reread this with this thing or with these notes? Yeah. I mean, there is some of that. And I think it's a... Um, it can be a paralyzing fear depending on the story because, um, you know, I mean, in some instances, some of the stuff I'm working on entails, no exaggeration, tens of thousands of pages of, of court documents, for instance. Um, and I think there's some degree of kind of neurotic compulsion that's really fruitful and productive in that kind of a situation. The thing that makes you keep going back to the pile and, and turning the pages and seeing what you might be missing. But it also, you know, if, if you give into that uh, too readily, I think it, it quickly becomes a kind of madness, right? Where you, right. you can just sort of endlessly report thinking that you're missing, um, you know, some particular gold thread that's eluding you. Hmm. And at what point, if you're working on a long magazine feature, or in the case of the, the the three books you've written and the one that you've got coming out next year, at what point are you starting to think about structure and, and that part of the narrative framework of a story so you can spin a good yarn? So this, is cha this has changed pretty dramatically for me since I started writing longer feature pieces um, about, God, about 15 years ago. Um, and it'd be hard to pinpoint the moment where it changed, but I, 
because I tend to take a pretty research intensive approach to this kind of writing, I, I just I do a ton of reporting and I, li- I like to report and it's always been most of my, you know, it's 90% of the work for me. I don't, mm-hmm. the writing is, it's not, the writing is not an afterthought by any stretch, but it's, it's, um, it's the last thing that happens. The danger of that for me is that it just becomes an open-ended process and you're just gathering more and more stuff. And every day you gather more and more stuff and you end up with this endlessly proliferating compost heap of, mm-hmm. of material. And there's lots of interesting stuff in there, but I think at a certain point it it's, at least for me, it's diminishing returns. And so there's an inflection point where you have to start thinking about structure. And for me, that, that point has come earlier and earlier, I think, certainly in recent years, which isn't to say that I'm, I'm cooking the books. You know, it's not to say that I, if there's one thing that I hate and it happens with every piece, it's when you get on the phone with somebody and they start out by saying, so what's your angle? Uh, And, you know, and I'm always like, I don't have an angle. Like, let's talk and tell me what happened and I'll develop my angle later. So I do tend to think you, you want to follow the facts and, and sort of figure out the story they tell. It's not that I want to, it's not that I want to prefigure the narrative, but I, I do think that um, for me, it's really helpful at a certain point to say, who are the characters? Who am I focusing on here? What are the big beats in the story? And what can I leave out? And and that point where I can start leaving out becomes, it's very liberating because then in a, in a weird way, then the, the reporting continues, but it's kind of, it's narrowing uh, rather than widening, if that makes sense. It's you're, you're beginning to focus in more and more on the stuff that you really need to know because you know it's going to go in. Yeah. As opposed to just sort of, oh, this, you know, this guy's interesting. Let's let's read his three books and figure out his biography. And, you know, maybe he'll fit in the piece somewhere, um, which I think is a, is a dangerous, at least for me, is a dangerous temptation. For sure. For sure. Yeah. People can you can really it's a productive way to procrastinate if you're not careful. It is. And you curse yourself because I think that the and again, I've, I think I've gotten a lot better about this over the years. But I think there is this tendency that a lot of reporters have when you make a discovery that seems inherently interesting and particularly if it was hard for you, if you worked hard to make that discovery to then feel as though you have to shoehorn it into the story you're telling. And I I think a lot of bad writing or not bad writing, but a lot of writing that, that may lack um, the kind of focus and drive uh, that it should have. One of the pitfalls is that, people are shoehorning in stuff that actually doesn't it's interesting but it doesn't belong in the story and that that, and to that end like you can of course like put that stuff in then maybe rewrites it comes it starts coming out and those are sometimes the dialogues you're having with you know with with an editor and a wingman and the daniel zaluski is it zaleski or it's zaleski Zaleski. so uh, so you've been working with him for a long time and he's just kind of a narrative whisperer if you will like so many of the things that he's worked on and helps usher through or some of the most brilliant pieces that come out in the new yorker he's a brilliant reporter and a writer so what's your relationship with him and how has he coached out the best in you over the years it would really be impossible to do him justice. He is, um, I, I think he, he's, he's pretty much a, a, a one of a kind brain in terms of a certain kind of heavily reported narrative nonfiction. And 
I first connected with him, it was 15 years ago. Uh, I freelanced for years before I went on staff at The New Yorker, but I worked with him starting with my first piece. And um, he's, you know, the relationship has evolved over the years, but he has, a, he has an incredible sense of what, a, what is a story. And he has a, this amazing kind of roving intellect where, you know, we have these ideas meetings at The New Yorker where you come in and you, you sort of pitch three ideas, not necessarily for you, but just that the magazine should be thinking about. And most of my ideas are kind of in my wheelhouse, like whether they're for me to be writing about or not. And the amazing thing is you watch Daniel and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll have some, he'll have a pitch about some crazy cutting edge discovery and nanotechnology. And then his next pitch is about um, some obscure but brilliant composer who's just like on the cusp. Um, and his next pitch will be about, you know, some some sort of behind the scenes intrigue in Washington. But he but what the, the, the through line, the DNA is that he has this extremely this just kind of preternatural sense of story. And so I think you see that if you think about the writers that he edits. Um, I mean, David Grand, Jane Mayer, uh, Lawrence Wright, and on and on and on. I mean, a, bu- a bunch of the greats. And you see that kind of manifest in, in all of their work. And for me, um, you know, it's a, it's a steady back and forth in which we're talking about ideas on the front end and what would make a good piece and how I could do it. And then I go off and start reporting and often I'll check in with him along the way, sometimes just with excitement to kind of get somebody else in the foxhole with me and say, hey, look what I discovered. But often with a sense of, you know, I'm trying to figure out where this goes or I've got this source who won't talk or, you know, I've just discovered this new thing and this may change the whole complexion of the piece. And then he's he's very, very involved uh, once I submit a draft and um, all the way through to the closing at a kind of line by line, word by word, incredibly exacting level. But he's he's amazing and I feel incredibly lucky every day to work with him. Yeah, that's uh, it's so great. Everyone speak. Anytime I hear his name brought up, it's brought up in the same the same with reverence. With reverence, it is because yeah. he kind of yeah. he what what the great editors do is they they just make the writer shine and get out of the way, and it's such a a unique thing. And it seems like from and I've never spoken to him, and I don't know him, but it seems very devoid of ego, and he's very happy to celebrate in the success of the writer, and that's got to be well, its own gratification. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because you mentioned, you know, he, he's a writer and reporter himself and has written these amazing profiles. And I, I'm still hoping I, one day I think there should be a book. They should put all, all of his profiles together in a book because if you look at them end to end, I mean, they're amazing. But yes, the the thing that is so uh, I do think that there's a kind of selflessness to editors, be they, you know, book editors, magazine editors, um, newspaper editors in which the metabolism of a of a big reported feature for me is, you know, I'll spend four, five, six, eight, ten months working on something. And the final stretch is a couple of weeks in which Daniel is involved in a very intensive day-to-day way. And then we close the piece and I basically get to like sleep all weekend and then do a victory lap on Monday. Mm-hmm. And he starts and you know, he comes in on Monday and dives into that intensive process with somebody else's. I mean, this happened two weeks ago. I was, I was, I had a piece, it was a web piece, but a 5,000 word web piece heavily reported 
um, you know, lawyers involved. It, it was an intensive operation. And he closed it, I think literally he closed it between closing a big piece by Jane Mayer and a big piece by Paige Williams. And they all came out within, they all posted within 48 hours of one another. And, and you had a, have a pretty atypical path to narrative journalism. It, it doesn't involve J school or that track. You know, of course, you went to Columbia and you got your JD at Yale. And uh, it's uh, not what you would consider a typical path. So what was it about, or you know, narrative journalism? Maybe what were you reading that kind of uh, you know, turned a light bulb on and said, you know, I, I kind of want to try this out? I... I, I think I the thing is I had always wanted to be a writer. I didn't know um, precisely what that would look like. Mm -hmm. So I, I had this, I think I was risk averse enough <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I felt like I needed some kind of a, a cover story or a day job, particularly in college and immediately post-college. I knew, I knew certain people who would like sit in cafes and meet people and tell them that they were a writer, <laughs> you know, and say, I'm a writer. And, um, th th I found the kind of the pose of that a little off putting. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was much more, you know, I'm going to keep, this is going to be this secret thing that I nurture until it's real. And, um, what that meant in practice is I went to grad school. I went to law school. I did all this other stuff. But I always knew that what I wanted to do was was right. It, it just was taking me a while to figure out how to how to make it happen. And so, even by the time I got to law school, I mean, I think I, I got the the deal to write my first book at the end of my first year of law school. So at that point, it it suddenly began to feel real. That's awesome. That just you like being like under the water doing this it just reminded me of what when you say in wind of change the the surfacing moment when the yeah, submarine yeah, comes yeah. up that just hit me it was just like here's patrick he's surfacing with the writing career <laughs> yeah it was a little bit like that um it was a little bit like that but i just think that there was a you know i mean it makes me blush to think about it but it's like i have friends who went back when i was in grad school there's a friend who always gives me a who always gives me a hard time about this but the um you know about me we were we were on a plane and like on a overnight flight to England and I everybody else is just like hanging out and I whipped out my laptop and I'm typing away and and you know I was working on like an article that I hoped would run somewhere of course it never did right um <laughs> there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of rejection uh in those in those early stages what gave you confidence during those the that that era of rejection that uh you know allowed you to keep going in the face of it i think it was partially a sense that that this was this thing that i just really wanted to do i don't i would be lying if i said i thought i was all that good at it what it, it wasn't a sense where i you know i was convinced i was a genius and the world just didn't understand <laughs> um it was more to me the notion of of like writing big articles for the New Yorker magazine was just, just, I, I couldn't conceive of a better job than that. And so I think it was a stubbornness. And then also a, <laughs> a rapidly dawning appreciation of what a terrible lawyer I would make. <laughs> um, you know, so I, so in some ways, like law school was a very useful exercise for me in a whole bunch of ways. Um, and it, you know, it's like, 
an expensive and time consuming way to learn that you don't want to be a lawyer. But, um, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, the, that message was brought home. <laughs> and over the course of, uh, of your reporting and your writing, uh, do you run into the the nerves that sometimes come in when you're, you know, maybe you've got a big source and a big, um, you know, a big interview ahead of you and, uh, and uh, you've done all your research or maybe you feel like maybe you haven't done enough and you're, I don't know, I get a bit of a sort of chest tightness sometimes when I go into interviews, no matter how much research I've done, no matter how many times I've done, you know, this thing between us. Uh, sometimes I get you know, just uh, that niggling anxiety. So I wonder if that's something you experience. And if you do, how, how do you work through it? Yeah, I mean, so, so two thoughts. One is that I think there is a, there is a, there are some, there's some kind of standard social anxiety uh, that on, I mean, I'm, you know, um, <laughs> I'm an old guy. I've been doing this a long time. And I really <laughs> thought that, I thought that, uh, I thought it would go away, you know? Yeah. Um, but I still get nervous picking up the phone to call a stranger. Um, yeah, me too. And, you know, not like cripplingly nervous, but I feel it in my chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's strange is I look back to, um, you know, I look back almost 20 years when I was working on my first book and I was a law student. I had a book contract. Um, but I didn't have any affiliation with any newspaper or magazine. I'd never really written for a newspaper or magazine. And I was calling people to ask them for an interview. And I felt like it was just so open-ended, you know, it's like, hi, I'm this guy. You don't know anything about me. And to the degree that I can tell you anything, it's that I'm a law student, which, which Hmm. shouldn't actually, I'm a student, you know, it's like, it's, it's not going to command all that much respect. And at the time, I think I thought my nerves I thought like, oh, you know, once you have a legitimate thing to tell people, I sort of thought, you know, that it's like when, when you can say, hey, it's Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, you know, <laughs> they're like, that's it, you know, um, it's I Hirsch or the New Yorker uh, that that you, you know, you would you would command um, just natural confidence. And, and that, I don't think that's necessarily the case on the preparation thing. It's a little different in the sense that the um, for the kind of interviews you're doing you know, it wouldn't be much of a conversation unless you were prepared. Right. Right. And for me, it's not that I don't prepare. I do, but I also, I, I generally don't go in with a huge list of questions. I tend to prefer interviews to be pretty open-ended. Um, so I may have some specific things I want to hit, but I don't have a script. I also have this thing that I've, I've gotten better at over the years, which is that I I tend to find that the interview is much better if the person thinks I'm an idiot and I don't know anything. <laughs> like I, I used to, I used to have this desire to like prove that I, that I was hip and like show them how much preparation I'd done. Right. Yeah. I guess to, I guess to win their respect or something. And I realized that that doesn't produce good answers. Like the reader hasn't done all that preparation. Right. So it's better for the reader. If what I'm presenting them is quotes from, from an expert, who's talking as though they're addressing a 12-year-old. Because you know? um, you'll probably find that in the if you do if you over-research in that way and trying to overcome some sort of insecurity, in a sense you might be answering questions for them instead of getting yes. good tape. Yes. Totally. And and the worst is when they they feel like, oh, you know, well clearly you've done your homework. Like I don't need to explain what the and then pick the thing is like whatever this concept is. And those are actually the moments where it would be so much better to say, 
yeah, I'm not sure I really understand that. Can you like, can you explain it to me? Um, and you, you kind of force them to do the exposition. And it may be that in the end, you're better at the exposition than they are, but it, it's worth giving them a shot because sometimes people are really brilliant at, you know, if it's a specialist, they've had a lifetime of practice of like explaining to relatives or whoever else uh, what they do in simple language. Exactly. And so as you, you're a print guy, books, New Yorker, and then of course, Wind of Change, this story that's been, you know, chewing at you for over, you know, for close to 10 years when you, when you've launched Wind of Change, how does that become, how does that come to the table and how does that become a podcast versus a narrative podcast versus maybe, you know, doing a a long feature or even a book? Yeah, I so this was a, a thing I'd been thinking about for a long time, and a part of what I was thinking about was how do you tell the story? And I have a theory, and so this is, I mean, really, I think this is a Zaleski theory that I, I would say I, bar, I, bar, I borrowed it, but it was more that I was, I was forced to adopt it <laughs> as one of his writers, that if you have a story that's a mystery and you want to do a 10,000-word magazine article, you'd better solve the mystery at the mm. end. Um, that there's something about telling a complicated story that's going to take somebody the better part of an hour to read, where if they get to the end and you say, and we'll never know, you know, but thanks for reading, they'll feel like they, they want their hour back. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I've, this has kind of come up a million times because we, you know, you pitch a piece and you say, oh, here's this interesting thing. And it's like, well, can you, can you nail it? Um, can you solve the mystery? And if you can't, it's usually a pretty high bar. So that was the problem, was that I always knew with the Scorpions and the CIA that, you know, either the CIA wrote this metal ballad or they didn't. But either way, it's going to be very hard to come up with, to either prove the positive or prove the negative in a kind of definitive dead to rights way. And so what that meant was that for years, this was kind of, it was something I was really interested in, but I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And I was certain it wouldn't work as a magazine article. And then the, the big revelation for me was, was that it could be a podcast. Um, and so, so it's funny, you, you might think with the podcast that the fact that it's all about music is the reason I wanted to do it in, in, in an audio form. And it's not the first, I mean, that was a kind of a, a nice benefit, but the, the initial reason that it took that form was that there's something about podcasting where, you know, you get to the end of the first season of Serial and they say, like, maybe Adnan did it. Maybe he didn't. You know, <laughs> thanks for listening. Um, and actually, uh, the, the you know, I think, I think some people might have complained about the ending, but lots and lots and lots of people felt as though this was hugely worthwhile and totally interesting. And I'm still trying to sort out why that is. I think, you know, I think it has something to do with the, the voice in your ear, the identification you feel with the reporter but some, somebody said of 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 my show of wind of change that podcasting is a very generous medium and i think that's true mm. and i yeah i listened through it twice and it was one of those deals where especially the second time i heard it through i'm like part of the appeal of this whole thing again is just it's like report like a, a story about the search more than the answer and there are enough footprints leading up to the goal line without scoring the touchdown that almost it kind of answers it for you without 
really, you know, giving you the medicine, if you will. So I don't know. I don't know. Did it strike you like that? Because that's kind of how it landed on my ear. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, part of what, um, part of what was interested in is ambiguity. Um, And weirdly enough, it all kind of comes full circle. But my first book was about the National Security Agency. And it was kind of a, it was sort of about, it was a book about my failure to write a book about the National Security Agency. Hmm. And and it seemed interesting to me that the biggest intelligence agency in the country, which has a huge impact um, on the United States and global affairs, was was totally unknown. And people and you, it, there was just a kind of a, a sense that um, it's so secret that it's not really subject to democratic accountability or accountability by the press and what have you. And that to me was interesting. And so here too, I felt as though there are these mysteries and these things that, you know, sometimes you, you never will know. And I was interested in that, in, in interrogating that. And um, the metaphor that I really liked is my friend, uh, a very good friend, um, Jonah Weiner, who's a, a um, also a magazine writer, writes for the New York Times Magazine. And Jonah listened to the episodes as we were making them and was giving me notes. And he had this, this, this great image. He said, it's like you're, um, you know, the central mystery. It's like you're going up a spiral staircase and the central mystery is, is the banister. And along the way, you keep pointing to these interesting pictures on the wall, but you always have one hand on the banister. And that was kind of the way I thought of it. Yeah, yeah, and there are the those moments too. Like we, uh, if we bring it back to the the whole surfacing thing, like you in the episode that really focuses on Doc McGee. You know, you've done a lot of your research, and you go to him, and he's thinking it's going to be this one thing, and then you even like comment on the fact that you're about to surface to us. And then you surface to him and it's just like the tenor kind of changes. And it's like, you can't really pull that off in print. And that was so perfect in audio. Yeah. I mean, it was, this this was for me a big part of the learning curve um, and the fun of doing this. And I should say, I mean, I was brand new to all this. I'd never done anything. I'd been a guest on podcasts like this before, but I didn't know anything about podcasting other than as a listener, but I was in incredibly good hands. I had, um, you know, these amazing producers, particularly Henry Malofsky, who was kind of my partner on the whole thing. And Joel Lovell was my editor. And they had coached me on how audio, audio is just very different from print. And one of the big things that they said early on when I'd done, I mean, we did almost 100 interviews for the for this thing. So I, it was a slow, it was a gradual learning, learning curve so much for me. Tape. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a ton of tape. But the... Um, <laughs> But they said at a certain point that I was I had this tendency to to rush in and fill the silence. So if I was talking to somebody and they were uncomfortable, I would my natural tendency just as a you know, as somebody with some emotional intelligence, but also as a reporter who's always trying to put people at ease, is I'll rush in and fill the silence. I'll talk and try and if I can hear discomfort in your voice, I want to talk you. I want to talk you back from the ledge and make you comfortable. That's what I've done my whole career uh, when I'm interviewing people and they had to be like, no, 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 that silence is gold. You know what I mean? The, the, don't step on that silence. Like let it play out. The awkwardness is good. And by the time we went to see Doc McGee and then later Klaus Meine, I had learned that lesson. And I, I think, you know, I think it shows cause I think, I do think the awkwardness and the tension is effective. 
Yeah, and and in I think it was before that interview, uh, and before the Klaus Mina interview, where you did express some some sort of uh you know pre game time jitters or nerves, and uh, it's what's funny is you know in this piece, and you said earlier that you're kind of risk averse, but you you've kind of like it, it, through the course of your reporting, you kind of put yourself in these s- situations where you know our our spy thriller mind would be like, yeah, Doc McGee's gonna you know, close the windows, his team of goons is going to come in after you surface and he's going to take you out and bludgeon you. And it's just, uh, it was really funny when I was like thinking of that, visualizing it. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a, there's a moment in the final episode where I talked about very, at the very end of the show where I talked about um, how, <laughs> how, um, you know, Henry and I were feeling super spooked, but at the same time, simultaneously, we were feeling really silly for feeling so spooked. Right. And that was the thing I wanted to, that was the sensation I was hoping to bottle with the show. And so to the degree that the listener can vicariously feel any of that, I'm, I'm really happy. Like, I'm happy to hear you felt that way because that was, that was what I wanted to get across. Right. And, and through the course of, the the production of Wind of Change, uh, this is kind of a two-parter. In, in what way did, say, your, you know, your experience as a reporter and a writer kind of inform the podcast and then coming out of the podcast, how has that maybe, I don't know, just rewired you in a certain way that might be bleeding into your writing in a way that you would have never known had you not done Wind of Change? Oh, it's interesting. I You know, I don't know. It certainly my, the, the, um, the podcast was very much a, in some ways it was, um, a, uh, it, it grew naturally out of the work I've done over the years, even though most of that work is, is somewhat different. Um, particularly tonally, it was a t- like tonally, it was very different for me, but in it, so, so it was this weird thing where on the one hand it was kind of a departure. Right. And for me, I mean, it, it was this fun thing that I did between, um, you know, my book about war crimes in Northern Ireland and my book about the opioid crisis in the United States. <laughs> um, the idea that I got to spend a year, you know, interviewing crazy ex-spies and like guys from Skid Row and uh, run around going to rock concerts and just having fun. It was great. It was like, it was just a, I loved it from start to finish. As for how it changes things moving forward i don't know i mean I, I i don't have any immediate plans to make another podcast i'd like to but i think i don't i don't want to do one just to do one um so it would really have to be the right the right story yeah and and you know in terms of my writing i don't know i it, it'll be interesting to see if it if it influences it um i've done i've done something i've done on the side for years and years um is screenwriting the end I realized in the last few years that my screenwriting has actually really affected my, the way I write nonfiction. Mm. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if something similar happens with podcasting, but mm. uh, nothing discernible so far. In what way has the screenwriting uh, influenced your, your narrative writing? Uh, mostly in terms of um, edits. Like when, like when you get into a scene and when you get out of it and then juxtaposing scenes... I mean, it's, it's mostly about kind of bringing in some new piece of information at the end of a scene. And then I think the natural tendency would be to unpack it and explain it. But in the language of screenwriting, right, it's like I, I'll cut away. 
a cutaway to something else. Yeah. Knowing that I've just, I've just gotten your attention because you want to know about whatever this thing is that I've just dangled. And that then buys me time to, you know, tell you about something else for five pages in the hopes that you'll, <laughs> you'll stick around because you want to see what's <laughs> going to happen with that, with that thing. I mean, that, that's the, it's sort of the oldest trick in the book in terms of, um, you know, movie edits. And um, it's one that I find it kind of snuck into my writing before I consciously realized where it had come from. Hmm. And I like to, at the beginning of Wind of Change, how you essentially narrate how your, how a lot of your, uh, a through line of your stories is, is secrets and secret worlds and uncovering things I'm not supposed to know. And, uh, and a conviction as you go on to say that the real story lies in whatever room we're locked out of. So, uh, you know, where, where does that, where does that come from? And where's the, you know, of course, we're all intrigued by, by secrets, but it, but I think with you, it's, you take it another step further because you're pursuing such stories that are, uh, that are just so gripping. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. And I think the, the really strange thing is in that little speech at the beginning of, um, wind of change. I mean, it was only retrospectively where I was forced. I'd been asked a handful of times, you know, what, what's the through line here? Like, how do you connect all these random stories? And that was the best thread that I could come up with. It's not like there's some formative childhood experience of some, some locked room or whatever. Uh, and it's definitely not that um, I have any kind of a formula for what seems worth pursuing. It's all in the gut. It's all just this sense of, oh yeah, that feels like, you know, that feels like something I want to explore. But I don't know. I honestly, I have no idea. I think it's, you know, it's some of it is probably a, a slightly juvenile sense that the thing you tell me I'm not supposed to know is immediately going to become the thing I want to know. Right. And I love how you, I, I, I think you, re, you tie it up really nicely at, at the end, of course, because we know, it, you know, spoiler alert, we don't really know in the end, though you can surmise that it's something that the CIA could have cooked up. Um, but at the end, it's this nice scene after you talk with Klaus Meine in, uh, in Hanover, you know, and he's at the bar and you just, you know, he's just talking with a local there and, you know, you don't approach him again, but you start to think that maybe that seed that you had, you had planted a seed in his head that maybe this had happened or maybe he knew all along. And then you end this thing of just saying like, you know, what if, and I think it just, I, I think it's just like the perfect little grace note that, uh, that maybe, Klaus is thinking about it, and of course we're thinking about it. So that was just a great piece of writing, and of course you know performative reading that you leave that hanging, and it just feels really satisfying, even though the mystery goes unsolved. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say so. Yeah, I mean it was a you know as you can imagine. So we didn't know how this. We didn't know what Klaus was going to do. We didn't know. You know, we honestly we thought that this could have ended with Klaus Mino like flipping over the table and like shrieking, you know, go fuck yourself and walking out. Right. right. Um, uh, I was pretty certain it wouldn't end with him being like, you know, you got me like, finally, like the truth has caught up with me. Um, but we just didn't know. And so he, for my purposes, like short of a full confession, it was the perfect ending because he, he was so great and kind of willing to go through the whole thing, but also he was so enigmatic. So in a weird way, like if you wanted to preserve the ambiguity, 
I mean, it's just hilarious because I've had so many people get in touch with me. I've had tons and tons of people get in touch with me and say, like, you know, when I got to the last episode, I listened to Klaus Meina talking and it was plainly obvious to me that, like, the CIA had nothing to do with this song and he's just totally <laughs> confused and this whole thing has been a wild goose chase. And then I've had so many people get in touch and be like, like, Klaus is totally in on it. Like, it's so obvious and, like, pointing to particular moments and the, it's a kind of perfect Rorschach where um, different people hear different things. And uh, so from a purely narrative point of view, um, he really... Uh, he, he was very obliging. <laughs> and as we uh, bring this airliner down for a landing, Patrick, I'd, I'd love to uh, you know, ask you this, uh, this little thing. It's kind of a goofy way of asking what's a really influential books for people. I always call it the sort of bookshelf for the apocalypse. Uh, a few books that you just keep in your knapsack that are taking the place of some canned goods that could very well nourish you, but these things nourish you in a different way. And I was wondering maybe what some of those books are and uh, maybe why they're so important to you. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned that you would ask me this and I thought about it and it, I kind of surprised myself because they're mostly novels and mm-hmm. I don't read nearly as much fiction as I used to. Um, I used to read a lot more. I still do read fiction, but not not as much as I used to. And so strangely, they're mostly novels from a time when novels just had a huge impact on me. And so the ones that I, you know, the ones that I often go back to and think about, so they're, I mean, it, Probably Virginia Woolf, probably to the Lighthouse, which mm-hmm. I read in college, but it was one of those books that just kind of just sort of changed the way I saw the world and saw writing. And then a bunch of like, um, I mean, another one again from that sort of same era, but a, a book that I revisit. Well, I mean, it's a, a bunch of Nabokov. I read a ton of Nabokov in college. And the, um, I mean, I don't know if it'd be Pale Fire or Panin, um, would probably be my favorites. And then weirdly, a, a genre book that I read my first year of law school that again, just kind of changed the way I thought about writing was um, Presumed Innocent by Scott Turow, kind of a, you know, like a legal thriller, but I, I, th- I think of a very high literary order. I thought it was fantastic. Um, mm. And I go back to that one a lot. Another one that sort of fits in that, in that wheelhouse would be um, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which I, I also go back to a lot. And then the last, I think to round it out, it, one, of my, one of my favorite novels ever, um, and I got to know the person who wrote it later, which was, which was um, wild, but um, Helen DeWitt's book, The Last Samurai, which I read, I was living in England in grad school, and I read that book, and it was just, uh, you know, I mean, I think as with those others, it's those moments, the, the, the books that really register with me are, are the ones that are both kind of completely absorbing on a page by page basis, but also just sort of, just kind of change your sense of what a book can do. Mm. And isn't, um, that, isn't that kind of why sometimes we kind of get into this racket too? Because you read those books and they do something to you, rewire your brain and make you just think of things differently and entertain you in such a way. And then, you know, if you, you know, if you dare to have sort of that uh, audacity of spirit, if you will, to step into that arena, then maybe if you're humming at, at, at full capacity, maybe you can have a similar effect on somebody else. I mean, I, yeah, I think so. I, I think the thing that was really strange for me when I thought about it is that I wouldn't, t- is that I, I, you know, truly, if it's like the desert island thing, like I wouldn't bring Robert Caro or, you know, I mean, the, like the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of, I mean, there's any number of great nonfiction books that mean a lot to me, but yeah, I think it's, and, and it's strange kind of looking back to these f- formative reading experiences that happened 20 years ago or more, 
but it is strange to me that the the like visceral sensation that you have as a reader like i can i can i can sort of describe the almost physical reaction to reading the last samurai in like the year 2000 that that's a, that to this day is a more kind of vivid reading experience than you know some terrific book that i read 2 weeks ago oh that's awesome well, well, Patrick, I need to be mindful of your time, of course. I've uh, been just a Titanic fan of your work for a while, and this is such a, a, a yeah, and this is just such a, an honor and a thrill to get to speak to you about it and about your approach and everything. Um, you know, for people who might not be familiar with your work or where to find your work, um, where can they find you online and uh, you know and get more familiar with your work if they're not if they aren't already? Uh, so probably I have a website which is just patrickradenkeefe.com, um, and uh, I'm on Twitter at what a voice, right? He's got a great voice. Unbelievable writer and reporter. Thanks so much to Patrick for the time and for you, of course, for listening and being part of this CNF and community. Don't forget that if you need an editor or a coach to hold you accountable, I can be that guy for you, and I would be honored to be that guy, to see things you can't see. Sessions with me include Skype calls, transcripts of those calls, that's cool, detailed critique of the work, email support, and the peace of mind knowing that you've got me in your corner. Email me to start a dialogue, brendan at brendanomera.com. Dot com. Lately, I've been swollen with dread. I don't know what it is. I've been waking up in the morning and nothing seems possible. I come up with what I think are good ideas and I start to think, well, if it was any good, somebody else would have done it already. Then I get into this frame of mind that success is for other people and that people like me, it's not an option. Been dealing with that. You ever deal with that? It's a crummy place to be, let me tell you. I don't know what to do. Maybe try to journal the shit out of it. Maybe it'll die on the vine. I don't know. But I got to thinking this week, too, about cookbook authors. And this is that thing I was talking about earlier at the top of the show about cookbook mentality. And what are cookbook authors and chefs doing? What are all the famous chefs doing? They're giving away recipes. They are telling you how to cook like them. Even putting down the stuff they make in their restaurants. On their menus, sometimes it is right in those cookbooks. They're not worried about secrets. They're giving the secrets away and saying, Here, I made this for you to try. And with a little rigor and some technique and some good little kitchen gadgets, whatever, you can have it at home too. It's something I've taken the calling, like I said earlier, the cookbook mentality, which is to say, be generous, don't hold back, don't hoard secrets or techniques. If something works really well for you, Share it. Why not? Other people can substitute different ingredients for what they want, you know? Swap something out. See what works. But having a cookbook mentality is the mindset I think we should all strive for. I, I have nothing to really offer you at the moment. You'd think I would be like, all right, you know, here's this thing. Why don't I offer you something? But I don't know. I don't have anything to share that I haven't already shared. Figured I'd at least share this sentiment. That's something. But you, you know what else is kind of sad? We'll, we'll end this show on a real bummer, okay? I just realized 
I haven't written a feature in over a year. Makes me think that if you can do, interview, see ya.